Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting a local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 40. That's right, the big 4-0. My guest for this 40th episode is Executive Director of the International Mountain Bicycling Association, Dave Weens. This one was so much fun to record as Dave came over to my house a couple weeks back to lay this one down. He's also a resident of Gunnison, Colorado. I feel like we could have kept going for several more hours because Dave is such a great storyteller. I wanted to get him on the show to talk about his experience in local grassroots advocacy, having founded one of the local advocacy groups here in Gunnison called Gunnison Trails. He recognized the need a while back for an advocacy organization in the Gunnison Valley to work with land managers to really legitimize mountain biking on public lands and to demonstrate to them that they have a partner in taking care of these lands as well. In doing so, Dave emphasized to me that this took a lot of time a lot of meetings, and a lot of learning along the way. He made sure that they went through the proper channels to build trails, they engaged with local wildlife advocates, and many other stakeholders that were so important to consult in their pursuit to improve the mountain biking experience here in the Gunnison Valley. As Dave shares these stories from his Gunnison Trails days, I want you to put on your climber hat and think about all this and what he has to say through the lens of climbing, and I'm sure you're going to see the similarities between advocating for these two sports as it is very transferable to leading a climbing organization. And towards the second part of our conversation, we get into his role as executive director of the International Mountain Bicycling Association, or IMBA for short. It's much easier to say. I learned so much more about this organization, and I realized that they're a bit more than just a mountain biking organization. They're really focused on trail access as a whole. I was so impressed by that when Dave was talking about this. IMBA has taken to heart the importance of doing what they can to help make trails accessible to everyone. Through their close to home initiative and being a supporting organization of trails or common ground, IMBA is putting the best foot forward and making trails a safe place for everyone to enjoy. My favorite part perhaps was this though. He says, by leading with kindness, which I think is just so powerful, by leading with kindness, Dave says he wants to see our trailheads look more like our country. 
While a climber's experience on a trail may be a little bit different than a biker's or a runner's, as we are typically using the trail for access, you know, to get to the crag, get to the boulders, so on and so forth, versus them using the trails for their actual activity, trails are still a big part of our experience as climbers. And Dave just sees the value in trails, and I hope you all do too. So please enjoy my conversation with IMBA's Executive Director, Dave Weens. Enjoy. Well, it's been a while since we've seen each other. It I think. has. It yeah. has. You know, we met like, I think seven years ago. I came into the BLM office when my climbing organization was getting started. Right. Or our, I want to say our climbing organization was getting started here in the Valley. And I was here to meet, the, you know, meet with the BLM and, and Dave's there. You know, we hadn't met before, but, you know, with your experience in local advocacy, outdoor advocacy, you were there to lend some advice and guidance and stuff. And I've taken that. You know, it's been a kind of an up and down thing with Gunnison Valley climbers over sure. the last few years. It's yeah, yeah. just kind of, it's tough to, you know, run things with the transient college community and stuff. But yeah, that's where we kind of met. Right. No, I remember that. You remember that? Yeah, because I was, I was explaining to my wife and um, I said, you know, we came across each other and, and I had, you know, was doing Gunnison Trails at that time. And mm-hmm. and you were interested in sort of forming a climbing organization. And so we com- compared notes. and Yeah. It's been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, right on. And so how, how's the organization doing now? It, we're like, things are things are really good right You go by Gunnison Valley Climbers? Yeah. Right. And that's one thing that you recommended for anyone out there who's looking to form a climbing organization or needs to. You know, we're like, what do we call ourselves? The Gunnison Valley Climbers Coalition? Gunnison Valley Climbers Association? And you just, uh, you're like, what are you going to be called? What, what are people going to like know you by? So we just settled on Gunnison Valley Climbers, and everyone knows like GVC. It just kind of rolls off the rolls off the tongue really easily. Because you don't need you don't have to have association, affiliation, coalition. Those are great words, but you don't have to use them. Exactly. Uh, and it, it ends up being a brand. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, things are good. Um, it was kind of like I said, up and down. Just you know, we had college kids helping us out, so it's just, it just has that transient nature to it. Sure. People coming and going. Yeah. But, yeah, I caught a couple of new folks that are our homeowners here in the valley. Um, they're gonna be sticking around a while, and they're they're great. Things are looking good for this summer. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's encouraging. Well, Gunnison seems like uh, it's sort of found its way onto the map a little bit mm-hmm. for the outdoors. I mean, it always kind of got overlooked right. a little bit, and the, those of us who were here were like, <laughs> "It's coming." I mean, we, <laughs> it's we coming, have, it's and line. you guys have no idea yeah. how you know this is a pretty amazing place, and our access is is uh, you know it's. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's to everything. It's, it's yeah, next to none, really. Well, right on, Dave. Thanks so much for joining me tonight at my house. You bet. Yeah. I mean, this, these in-person interviews are really special for me to do because I don't do them very often. And let alone, like, at my home. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I know you yeah, got a great place awesome. here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny we haven't run into each other being in this small town and, and everything over the last few years. But let's start, like, the local level here, I bet. Um, I bet this is... I would bet, or perhaps it was just like the start of your advocacy career, quote unquote, with Gunnison Trails. So yeah, I'm kind of wondering what was kind of showing up for you around Gunnison that was perhaps starting to get your mind kind of turning and noticing things that maybe a more concerted effort needs to happen here to improve the mountain bike experience and improve the resources here and led you to start Gunnison Trails. Yeah, that, I mean, that goes way back um, for me because when I moved back to Gunnison, I was kind of in and out. I was a freshman at Western in 82, right out of high school, and then on again, off again. Came back in 87, and, and at that point was, was riding mountain bikes. And, um, 
you know, Harmons didn't have a whole lot of riding and Harmons wasn't an emphasis at that time. In fact, I don't think my first summer I even rode Hartman Rocks. I rode the Signal Peak area mm. because it was right behind Western. It was adjacent to town. There was a bit of a trail system there um, that had been developed by um, Coach Ken McLennan, uh, who was a ski team coach for a long time. I think he and his son developed it was for running so it was a pretty short system but it was um you know trails that they had marked with a stake and a coffee can lid that was painted either red or blue or yellow for the red loop the blue loop the yellow loop okay so i kind of you know cut my teeth on that and then explored further out on the on the roads there were a lot of roads around here but we would go up you know mcintosh mountain to the northwest of town mm-hmm. we'd go southeast of town um, we would ride up w mountain and you know just kind of exploring all over and um, like I said, I came to Hartman's kind of late, but the Rage and the Sage was a, an, a bike race that um, the local bike shop at the time, the Tune Up, and um, the West Elk Bicycle Club, um, those guys had that race along with, you know, they were a big road club. But then when mountain biking came along, um, they were big into that too. And <clears throat> a gentleman who still lives here, Greg Morin, was very instrumental in those early days of mountain biking. He was the promoter of the Rage, the Rage as we called it, the Rage and the Sage. <laughs> And it was out at Hartman's, and I remember riding it that next summer, summer of 88, and it just had a couple pieces of single track in it, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Behind the Rocks was there, and the water treatment loop, what what now is Graceland, it's been rerouted, and these okay. are just basically old cattle trails. Sure. And then at the very end, and you went way out there, but it was all on roads. At the very end, you, you came down the notch, so the notch was still there yeah. um, for whatever reason. But I think actually four-wheel drives used to go up and over the notch, like Jeeps used to go up in that, sure. in that zone. Um, so in those early years, it wasn't advocacy so much, but we were familiar with advocacy because of Simba, Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association. Yeah, they've been around since the 70s. Yeah, they're the oldest uh, mountain biking organization on the planet. And so they always had it going on up there. And, and at the time, it was Don and Kay Cook and those guys um, and, and others too, but they were, the, they, they were the main folks involved. And, you know, they did trail days and... Um, you know, those guys found a lot of trails or refound the trails, 403, 401, the Dyke Trail. A lot of those trails were built in the 30s. Um, and I could be wrong about this. This is my perception, but they fell into disrepair and were essentially lost. Mm-hmm. And then those guys went out and, hey, the trail is still here, just under some deadfall and overgrown. And let's get these things going again. And that's where a lot of the classics in Crested Butte were old Forest Service trails. Mm. And um, so they had a great heritage uh, up there of, of uh, advocacy. So I always was aware of it and um, would help out now and then when they had trail days and, and things. I wasn't super active. And then that, you know, IMBO had, had been developed right there right. around, um, what was it, 1989, 90, somewhere in that okay. area. Um, or maybe even 88. So, and I, and I was a member of IMBA from the beginning and understood the importance of it. Didn't really fully, you know, get it, but trails were proliferating at Hartman's. You know, a lot of those cow trails were becoming ridden in and more trails were popping up out there. And a pretty, a pretty good system of trails formed out there, but it just formed in that fashion that happened all around the world, wherever there were mountain bikes. I mean, Fruta happened the same way where folks just kind of went out there and found sort of the easy route to make some trails. And maybe there's some cool rock formations that they could utilize. And, um, you know, that's how, that's how Hartman's and a lot of other places formed. Can you describe Hartman's a little bit? Like, the, you know, it reminds me of like a mini Joshua tree. You know, I'm attracted to like the rocks that are around right. there, but yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the description that, that I use, that I've heard a lot is, 
it's a sea of sagebrush with islands of granite. That's exactly it. And, um, you know, some geologists claim it's a ring dike. I've heard other you know, geologists dispute that, um, whatever a ring dike is. But obviously there's some igneous activity there that's either, that either pushed up or has been eroded over time. And so the mountain biking that you get out there is fast and flowy and smooth on dirt. And then you'll hit a rock problem and you'll have some technical ups and some technical downs. Yeah. And then you're right back out into the sea of sagebrush. So, and it's just, you know, those two elements over and over and over. And obviously on the climbing side, all of those, the, the granite that's out there forms, you know, fantastic climbing and little tiny pockets of bouldering here and there and, yeah. and little secret spots everywhere. And then some, you know, the big main areas and, um, you know, it's, it's really cool, but uh, high desert, um, I'm sure I know there's, there's quite a bit of uh, archaeology out there in places, and it would be really interesting to, to know, um, you know, what happened over time. I mean, just by knowing some of the cultures that lived on W Mountain, that they've, you know, they go back, what, 7, 10, 12,000 years. I mean, pretty, pretty amazing, amazing stuff. So Harmons is a real gem, and, uh, you know, it was a dumping ground then. I was going to say, yeah. A place like Gunnison, if you can imagine, I think the, the city dump used to be right in town where the limb dump is now, used to be the main dump. And I don't know how much they, they charged back in the day, might have been free, I don't know. Then they had the dump outside of town where you had to, 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 to go a ways. But I'm sure people, you know, there was a, a time when you couldn't imagine paying money to throw stuff away when you could just take it out on public lands and just dump it. Right. And it took a long time for the Hartman Rocks user group to get on top of all of the all of the refuse that was out there. And it was, you know, furniture and appliances and and I mean they and I I wasn't involved in that many of the cleanup days because I was racing then and we were gone on the weekends. There was a crew here headed up by um, you know, I don't know if it was Marlene Crosby at the county, Dan Ampietro at the city, Joellen Fonkin, who is a homeowner out there. She was very instrumental in those early years, Mike Cole, others I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting. Um, but they went out there and, and they hauled away literally tons of stuff for several years before, okay, there's no more stuff out here. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was pretty amazing because, I mean, people would do things like, you know, go out there and put a 12 pack in a refrigerator and then go on a night ride and you know, impress their buddies by, hey, open the refrigerator. Look, there's beer. <laughs> I mean, that happened one time. I'm sure it happened more than once, but it happened oh, yeah. on one ride I was on. I like that. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I, I feel like recreation really saved Hartman's. And um, there's examples maybe in other places where an area that didn't, you know, didn't get the love from the climbing community and from the mountain biking community and from the hiking community. Um, and here, even the motorized community, the single track motorized folks really appreciate um, what they have out at Hartman's. And in some places that are that close to a town have been kind of lost just because of unbridled use. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really lucky that, that, I mean, Hartman's gets a lot of use and we can see that the camping and, and some of the, the, the main areas get pretty hammered. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a movement to try to help protect those because the, the landscape is so fragile out there, that high desert, it just doesn't come back. Right. And we've seen a couple instances where, you know, huge ponderosas, you know, were cut down by obviously people who probably made a poor decision fueled by alcohol mm -hmm. at 11 or 12 p.m. one night thinking mm -hmm. that they needed some firewood and cut down a, you know, 100-year-old tree. Um, so we've seen some, some things like that happen. And, you know, if you put your 25 or your 50-year hat on, you go, wow, you know, 
if just with a little bit of degradation each year, there's this place is going to be drastically different. So mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we do what we can to, to try to protect it. And it is, you know, I don't want to say, you know, the, the word sacrificial lamb or the phrase sacrificial lamb is, is kind of negative, but Hartman's really does absorb a lot of the recreation in the Gunnison area, um, particularly in this time of year right now, which is the spring when nothing else is open. All of the other lands around Gunnison are more or less closed because of either big game winter range, critical habitat, or sage grouse lecking, mating. Yep. Um, so everybody in the valley pretty much goes to Hartman's, whether they're riding a moto, a mountain bike, driving, running, climbing, you know, you name it. So it, it does see a lot of use. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden in the summer, although you've seen it now, the summers are a lot busier with camping. I mean, there's, there's rigs all the time. But, you know, that's kind of the, where our state is going. That's where, you know, the West is going. That's where our country is going. A lot of people have, have you know, really realized that the outdoors are pretty cool and pretty fun. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of new users out there. And it's up to all of us, hopefully, to help, you know, educate the ones that, that need the, the education and are open to it. And so we can all continue to be good stewards of, of our public lands because they're, you know, they're not making any more. No, no, it's a finite resource. And like you said, like... Um the, the Hartman's users saved Hartman's. I mean, you can almost deem these folks as like conservationists, like without even knowing it, which is really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what were some of those uh, first projects that kind of came out of Gunnison Trails? Well, so, so then, um, yeah, fast forward to probably 2005, somewhere around there, the trail system had been pretty well established. A lot of it hadn't been built, you know, with sustainable guidelines. So the trails were getting hammered um, by both water and then, you know, there's some motorized use out there and a lot of mountain bike use. And uh, some of the trails, uh, mainly water, I mean, water is the biggest culprit. When we get those sort of microbursts, mm-hmm. they can they can destroy a section of trail really quickly. And some of the classic trails had huge rain ruts in them, like Joshua's had a huge rain rut and people weren't riding it anymore. Mm. Um, and it, I thought, well, that's a crime that people aren't, you know, they're, not, they're, they're avoiding these trails that should be really accessible. So I just, you know, took it upon myself and I'd been kind of resisting the, the temptation to, to, you know, get into a leadership role in advocacy just because I knew it would, it would just be a ton of work and had other things going on and kids and family and all that. But finally just went ahead and said, you know what, we got to do this and worked with the BLM, had some early initial volunteers that were, that were, you know, real solid. Um, you know, Bill O'Rourke from Tamichi Cycles always came out. Hefe um, was part of the early crew. Dotson Harper, who's our board president with Gunny Trail still. Um, I'm probably missing a few, but we had this um, Jim Garrison um, photographer. We had a, a core that, that, you know, was they would come out and, and we would start working on the trails. And we worked with Arden Anderson, the rec, the rec manager at the time with the BLM. And he would, you know, allow us to get tools and help us with the projects. And, you know, he, he, was, he didn't just give us, you know, carte blanche access. We had to, you know, run everything by him and check the tools out. But eventually we earned his trust to where he, he let go of us a little bit. And um, that's really how it started. But at the same time, you know, there's something about mountain bikers that we're always thinking about new trails, too. So that was certainly, you know, part of the, the allure of forming an organization was, okay, we can maintain trails, which is absolutely, absolutely has to happen. We can educate trail users, which was really important. And I learned that from Arden and other land managers are like, hey, you know, the, the, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, we've got 
wildlife issues we need you know we've got some some closures we're going to institute we need help you know from you guys to honor these closures so that educating the trail users is really important and then looking for some new opportunities because you know there hadn't been an official trail built around Gunnison ever mm-hmm. i mean Hartman's and the road system's much the same and m- most of the roads that are named now or numbered by the BLM weren't actually constructed purposefully they were just you know pioneered and at some point they they bring them into the system and they did the same thing with a lot of the trails but the signal peak area for example had a few trails in it but they were they weren't system trails they weren't you know sanctioned trails they weren't on a map a lot of them had a you know a, a livestock and, and wildlife origin they were in a drainage um, Rasta Gulch is a great example mm-hmm. chicken scratch which has now been reclaimed and changed to chicken wing, chicken wing right um, so you know that was part of it too was the new trails but we really started maintaining trails but in right right away and and, and I at some point, I don't, I don't even remember the, the sequence, but okay, we need a name, just like with the climate organization. We needed to be, be an organization, settled on Gunnison Trails, purposely didn't want to become what, what we call an MBA, a mountain bike association, because you know we weren't just that. It was mountain biking heavy for sure, because mountain bikers are you know very, um, um, they're great advocates. They love to get involved, but it was hiking and trail running too. I mean, we did, we did have to decide, okay, are we going to limit ourselves to, and we decided to, to limit it to human powered recreation. So it's basically rec- um, trail based recreation and fitness, hiking, walking, running and mountain biking. We weren't horses and we weren't motos. Mm-hmm. We weren't anti those things. And we worked with those user groups, but we focused on the human powered element of it. So then became Gunnison Trails. Um, and then uh, I registered with the Secretary of State. It was ten bucks. I thought I thought we were a nonprofit. <laughs> we're a nonprofit. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, upon doing further research, you're not a nonprofit. You're not even close to being a nonprofit because mm-hmm. that's a special designation from the IRS and blah blah blah. C three. Exactly. So <laughs> ultimately, we, um, you know, I knew we needed to go in that direction, and and um, we did. And so to do that, you have to have a board of directors and put together the board of directors and Aaron Huckstep. Um, you know, married to Christy, yeah. he, he was on our board and he did all of the due diligence and got us our 501c3. Um, and we had, uh, you know, Gary Kaiser was a CPA and he was fantastic. I mean, he really whipped the organization into shape as far as the financial part of it. And mm-hmm. I remember handing him a box of receipts and he just shook his head like Damn it, Dave. Dave. And I learned so much <laughs> from him. And I, I, to this day, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful to everybody who's ever been on our board, but I think, you know, Gary, um, more than anybody has really, you know, really shaped um, Gunnison Trails and made it a very professional organization. And mm-hmm. and uh, he, he just stepped off the board in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, one of our projects was, okay, Signal Peak was a, a new trail project. The area to the north um, northwest of town um, is another area that I still, you know, we've got, you know, proposed trails up there above the, the river going all the way out to County Road 818. Um, you know, there's, there's challenges, uh, obviously, with new trail development around here. And then the Gunnison to Crested Butte Trail. I mean, we have uninterrupted public lands from Western State all the way to the city of Crested Butte, the mm-hmm. town of Crested Butte. Yeah. And, um, you know, the preferred alignments are, you know, getting over toward Almont and then, um, you know, heading up the flat top, Red Mountain, uh, around between Whetstone, you hit Baxter Gulch. Yeah. And it's a fantastic alignment. It's not that long. It's not, you know, crazy up, crazy down, crazy up, kind of contours. Um, you know, may, it may never happen. There's a lot of opposition to that. I was going to say, there are um, grazing leases on those public lands that might get in the way? Yep, yep. The, you know, 
there's certainly ranching ranching happening out there and there's you know hunting and uh, it's all public land yeah um so you know however that that debate goes but anyway it that that was a, an idea that was hatched you know back then 2000 2006 2007 and proposed and you know it still swirls out there and it's still talked about um but um, that was one that Gary, in particular, Gary Kaiser, really liked. You know, he, you know, there's a lot of people that are like that. That'd be great. Um, so I know that you know he was disappointed when we had to lighten up on our, our push for that particular project. Mm-hmm. But it's you know it's something that I've never you know completely given up on. Um, but we did put a lot of effort into Signal Peak, and it took 11 years from you know the original idea and proposing it to to the BLM and you know the powers that be until we put a shovel in the ground. And, you know, the Gunnison sage grouse had a lot to do with that. Um, but it, you know, took a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of meetings, a lot of energy, a lot of work, but there was also a lot of learning that, that I did along the way and folks who helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're talking, you know, Brian St. George at the BLM, uh, our, our field office manager during that time. I mean, he was, he, he, um, you know, got me on the strategic sage grouse committee. He had me come in and just present to them. And then Paula Swenson, one of the county commissioners said, you know, we should bring on an at-large seat for recreation. And, you know, we should, you know, offer that position, um, you know, to Dave and others to apply for. And so they, they created that position. And I, I sat on that, um, that board for a number of years until I transitioned to EMBA. And I think Tim sits on it to this day. And so you're involved in that, that county process, which is, you know, how can we protect, um, you know this this very rare bird and how does you know recreation fit into that and you get to interface and engage with the ranch ranching community and other elements in the community um and then you know the rec manager arden anderson was great you know i learned a lot from him over the years um then when he retired he was replaced by christy murphy and christy murphy i learned you know a bunch from her and she's since moved on too but you know one of the best lessons i learned from christy was um when somebody wasn't at the table who was a, a stakeholder, she would make sure they were represented. And other folks I'd come across would, would just say, well, too bad, they're not here. We're not going to honor their... But you know what? And Christy told me this. She, she goes, they show up in the end. And so you, you really you need to make sure you try to um, you know, honor what they, what they would want and work hard to get them to the table mm-hmm. and make sure that you don't just you know, cast them aside because eventually they'll come back. And so that was really good information for me to have. And it allows you then to hopefully, when you do have a, pro- a project, you don't surprise anybody at the 11th hour. Right. Um, and even on Signal Peak, you know, we got um, a little bit sideways with the wildlife community on that particular I wanted to mention that. topic. And it, it was because, you know, truly we were asked, we were told, well, you know what, we're gonna interface with that community, you don't need to. And then, you know, in the plan, I wrote it a certain way. And just the way I put the words together, it really sounded like, you know, we were just basically leaving that community out. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> I had engaged with um, with many of the wildlife advocates. I'd worked closely with CPW, Jay Wenham, and, uh, and his team at, at CPW. I mean, I was with those guys every step of the way. Um, but it's still, it's still, you know, it got a little, it got a little um, you know, tense there toward the end. Um, because people felt like this was coming out of left field, although it had been in the paper, you know, front front page of the paper for years. Yeah. Anyway, I understand everyone's got a, a perspective and everyone has values. And um, that's what, um, you know, I think makes our country great is that we can, you know, we can have those differences of opinion and agree to disagree. But, um, you know, at some, t- at some point we have to just come together and compromise and 
And, um, you know, that's getting to be harder and harder, it seems like. So many questions just came out of that, but I feel like mountain bikers can catch a bad rap with wildlife. Could you expand on that, just the nexus between wildlife and mountain biking? Yeah, one of the challenges with, with mountain biking is the amount of ground that's covered. Right. Um, you know, mountain bikers, you know, can cover a lot of ground and they move, you know, can move quickly and quietly. And so you can, um, I mean, there's been different studies that, that, that compare motorized use and mountain bikes and hikers. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's, you know, a study, you can make a study almost say anything you want it to. Um, and the studies have been all over the map and I've seen studies that say, you know, hikers are the, actually the, you know, the, the biggest impact because of the slow movement or with backpackers going up and actually sleeping and, you know, camping in places where there's wildlife. Um, I, I don't have a, a, I don't, I don't know. It is a, a big deal in places and at times. And that's why, um, you know, if you're going through the, the proper channels to, to build a trail and you're working with the local land managers uh, around here, it would be the BLM, Forest Service, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, their specialists will know what, um, you know, wildlife values are in a certain area in the time of year. Oftentimes it's not, you know, 365 days a year right. where those values are important. That habitat needs protection at a certain time of the year. And so, you know, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot more seasonal closures for wildlife. And right now, um, around here, we've got sage grouse closures from March 15th to May 15th. We've got big game wintering range. Um, the signal peak trails are closed from January 1st till May 1st for big game wintering. Um, and the Dr. Park Trail is closed until the Friday before Memorial Day weekend for protection of bighorn sheep. Um, and those are the main closures we have around here. But every place has, uh, not every place, but most places have some seasonal closures for wildlife or seasonal closures for hunting. Um, a lot of places in the Midwest and, and even in Pennsylvania and places like that, there's hunting seasons where the trails are closed so the hunters can go out there and not worry about, um, you know, recreationists. So um, it certainly is an issue and um, we have to be aware of that. And if you, um, you know, get the land managers who really understand the, the species and the, and the, you know, the, the, the life stage that they're trying to protect or the, the time of year they're trying to protect, we can usually work around that using the seasonal closures. And that's been effective around here. And I know, and I was talking about the education of trail users is something Gunnison Trails did, something that, that we're very proud of is the March 15th to May 15th, you know, closure south of the power lines at Hartman's for yeah. sage grouse was universally disregarded for years. I mean, people were just like, you know, and then when, and then that's right about when gunny trails formed and we realized that was important. And it just was a matter of sending some emails out and reminding people um, and, and telling them why. And we have, you know, the growler we started in 2008. So we had quite a few people from the front range and other parts of the state and the region coming to Gunnison before May 15th to pre-ride the growler course. And, and some of it is on the south side of the power line. So it was, it was closed, including right. Skull Pass, which is a, a section that a lot of people want to see because it's kind of technical. And so we would send them emails and just say, hey, remember, we've got seasonal closures for wildlife. It's really important that you don't ride these trails. And here's how you can ride most of the growler course without 
Um, and the compliance was was phenomenal. So, um, you know, that's a really important aspect of what organizations can do. And social media is a great way. And we didn't use social media much at all, but we used email a lot. And with a good email list, you can really um, get a lot of information out there to a lot of folks. And, um, and you know, you can, you can make a difference. And the other aspect of that is that the, the land managers are also getting those emails and they're seeing what your organization is saying and then they're actually seeing results on the ground. And so it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's very effective. Sure. Can't overemphasize the importance of those partnerships. Yeah, I was curious about, you know, you're talking about the early Signal Peak trails and some of those early Hartman's trails. They weren't in the system and that is like a, a federal designation of sorts. They got to be system trails to be often be worked on, put money towards, so on and so forth. And if they're not system trails and you're out going out there and having an impact, you know, there is there could be consequences to that of getting them closed and getting your access closed. Was that ever a concern for Gunnison Trails that, hey, if we don't approach this properly, these could get closed? And I know like sometimes with the climbers too, you know, flying under the radar a little bit could be preferred, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. But if, you know, it might come up and bite you in the, in the long run if you don't. So you might get kind of screwed in the end. So is that is that ever, ever uh, a concern for you guys? Yeah, you know, there was, a, there was a, a time during the, you know, when we were working on Signal Peak that, um, a user created trail just popped up out there and it was a, it was a, it was a good trail. In fact, it's still, it's still there today. It's, 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 it's been brought into the system, but at that time it was, it wasn't. And, um, I remember, you know, instead of, you know, I, I went straight to the land manager and I just said, Hey, this popped up. We put a sign up there. We said, you know, Hey guys, this, you know, we can't do it this way. Mm-hmm. This isn't how it works. We're going to lose, we're, we're not going to get this entire system. You know, we potentially can't, won't get this system because of something like this. So we need to make sure that we, we're going through the proper channels. We have to be patient. It's going to take time. Um, and eventually it worked out. Another time I was up, you know, riding signal and right on the backside of the peak, I saw a truck and I went up there and then I see, you know, three college kids building a giant kicker jump on the backside of Signal Peak. And I'm like, hey, fellas, you know, yeah. what are you guys doing? Yeah. And uh, they're like, oh, we were building out at Hartman Rocks, you know, by the base area. And, you know, we kind of got in trouble for that. So we just came up here in the middle of nowhere where no one, you know, won't bother anybody. And I just, you know, and they were cool. And I was, I was as kind as I could be. I said, because you can't, you know, you, you shouldn't do this because this is just, you know, makes it really hard for, you know, what we're trying to do, which is get a system of, of trails here. And whenever we do this kind of thing, it's not just mountain bikers. It's anything that you would, you know, go out and harvest, you know, trees illegally or, or rocks or, or whatever. Um, it just, you know, it, it, it erodes the trust of, of a lot more people than, than just the people who are doing it. So mm-hmm. we've had a couple of situations like that, but overall people have been, um, you know, really good around Gunnison as far as, um, you know, rogue building of trails and things like that. It's kind of a hard environment to do it in because everything's apparent, you know, there, there aren't woods to hide in or anything like yeah. that. Um, but we've got a good system too, I think. And that's part of it is. In a lot of places where a lot of things are getting built, it's because they don't have what they're looking for. And so they go, you know, mountain bikers will go out and build um, what they want. And if you have a lot of opportunities here, which we do, and Harbin's has, you know, has some, you know, as as hard as you want, some of the rock rock riding that is out there um, and plenty of of good riding for all abilities. So we don't see a lot of of that kind of thing around here. And so we've got a pretty good, good community in that way. That's good. That's good to hear. 
Well, with climbing, I mean, your trails are accessing climbing routes a lot of times. Use really. Yeah, and a different style of trail. I mean, if we were to build a you know a mountain biking style sustainable trail to a climbing spot, you guys would be going. We're like zigzagging up to get to this. You know, we want to go there. Yeah. And so, and it's not that you can't build those kind of trails. And I do believe the Access Fund is doing quite a bit of work with with Killer access work. trails. Killer work. And they need to be maintained because oftentimes they're. St- deeper mm-hmm. and since it's just you know since you're just hiking up it um you don't it doesn't it doesn't have to, to and you're not looking for that 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 mountain biking experience is the trail like right. wow this is a great trail and as a climber you're not going to be going man this is a great trail you're gonna be like <laughs> i want to get up there and um so it, it's fantastic that the access fund is really you know jumped into that world because it's it's basically saying hey this is part of climbing we need to get to our our climbing areas and if we just um you know, if you have a ton of braided trails going kind of to the same place, let's try to reclaim a lot of that land and, and do one primary trail to get there. And then mm-hmm. below your climbing, I'm sure you have those situations too where you lose a lot of vegetation um, underneath climbing areas. And that's a challenge, I'm sure. But, um, you know, I, I know that the Access Fund is doing phenomenal things in, in, uh, in that aspect. And that, you know, it's completely different than, than being up on the rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's absolutely a part of the experience and an important part and something that, that you guys need to take ownership of because nobody else is. So, you know, whenever you look at whatever activity it is, there are those ancillary pieces that, that are important that you need to pay attention to mm-hmm. um, to make sure that, I mean, I mean the Access Fund, it's, it's in the name. And it's the same thing. IMBA was born out of Access. You know, trails were being closed to mountain bikes, and that's why IMBA was formed back in, you know, the late 80s okay. is because of that. And there's not as much of that, but we still get into, into some Access challenges now and then that we're working on. And, um, yeah. you know, now we have e-bikes, and so there's a whole new... Um, there's always something new that comes along to, <laughs> to just keep you on your toes. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm glad you brought up Inbox. I think it's a nice segue. Um, how long were you at Gunnison Trails? When did you finish your tenure as ED there and segue into the ED of the national level organization? Yes, I was 11 years in Gunny Trails and, and you know, started it and it started small, um, you know, it was just me and, and um, you know, some folks. And eventually, um, you know, starting the Growler was a pretty big step because what the Growler did was, and that was in 2008, started Gunny Trails in 2006, did the first Growler in 2008. And I have to give a big shout out to the trail runners, Jake Jones and um, um, another another gentleman who used to be here. Um, hit the college, they started the sage burner and they asked me to mark the course for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was like, sure, I'll mark the course. And I marked the course. I was like, man, then the, the sage burner was just on Saturday. I said, we we're going to race bikes on this course. And we did. And it was a big hit. And so then, you know, it became, you know, the, the original growler and, um, that actually produces, you know, the, the money that funds the, the ED position. Um, and then that allows a lot of other things to happen too. So, you know, creating that funding mechanism for local organization is really important. But um, I know I got off topic there. No, no, no. If there's any other like little uh, nuggets of wisdom you want to drop there about sure. forming an organization, that'd be that'd be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, all volunteer organizations are great, and there's examples of all volunteer organizations that are high functioning and do really well. But you talked about the challenges you have here with sort of the revolving door of college students. 
And that can happen with volunteer organizations too. It can happen with, with paid positions. I mean, paid positions ebb and flow. But sometimes you'll get some great volunteers with tons of energy and they'll do, and then they'll move away or they'll burn out or whatever. And then it just has this huge drop off. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you're, you're trying to replace a volunteer. Whereas, um, you know, if you can get to the point where you have at least a part-time paid ED, and this is what was told to me by the ED of IMBA at the time, he goes, Dave, our highest functioning local organizations have at least a, a part-time paid executive director. Mm -hmm. What that allowed me to do once I was, you know, it started as 500 bucks a month. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, you know, getting rich, but it allows that person to go to meetings with land managers that often take place Monday through Friday during business hours. Right. And most people that have jobs and are volunteers can't go to a meeting at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. So if you can come up with a funding mechanism for a, a local organization, ours happen to be, I mean, membership is great, but we all know membership for, for a small organization is a few thousand bucks. Yeah. It's not gonna you know, pay for, for something or, or pay for you know, somebody to, to, to take a salary, but if you can, come up with an event and we got lucky with the growler and it's been successful and it's still successful to this day um, whatever it is um, local philanthropy uh, grants if, if someone writes grants and can can and an ed spends you know they spend half their time raising money yeah. um, for the organization exactly. <clears throat> so yeah. that, that that can help a lot and then when when I segued out of Gunnison trails the board you know we just put a, a, a job listing out and you know eventually we hired Tim Kugler and he's been knocking it out of the park, and yeah, he's, he's awesome. And he's taken Gunny Trails to to a whole new all new places. And he was he was great. And he would say, "Hey, Dave, you know what, what, what about this? What about that?" And I'd say, "Well, Tim, I, here's what I would do, but you don't have to do that. What's cool about you coming in is that, I mean, you know, I have the things that I did a certain way, and that almost to me is like <clears throat> your organization gets to be in a little bit of a rut. And when you bring new leadership in, you almost want to encourage them." to put their own take on it so that then the organization expands and grows. Mm -hmm. And it's done that under Tim's leadership. And like the youth crew, um, I mean, I got that started and hired Tim. Tim was our first sort of oh, leader nice. of the youth crew. I and that was, I don't know how many years ago that was. <laughs> you know, Tim was the, the trail boss and he had this, these two or three high school kids that kept, you know, quitting and we kept hiring them and, you know, it was, but you know, that was year one and year one was, yeah, we got a little bit of work done. Now what he's doing with that crew is just phenomenal and Steiny and, and I was out there riding today and I'm seeing the work they're doing and I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm on gateway and they've put in these, you know, fantastic, you know, water diversions and rebuilt sections of trail and I could just see their work. And um, I mean, that's, that's really, that's, that's cool. And that's, those are jobs in the Valley, right. you know, paying people to work on trails, paying young people to be outdoors and, and put their phones away and, mm -hmm. and a little sweat equity. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I think uh, Gunnison Trails is going to be helping us out with something with a project probably next year, but Tim and I are going to go out there at the end of the month and do some site visits up Taylor Canyon. Oh, that's great. And that's one thing that Tim has really been good about is, is, is definitely getting out of just the mountain biking. Mm -hmm. And um, he's done work in wilderness, like they'll go into wilderness areas and they'll camp. They'll be in there for yeah. you know a week and rebuild some wilderness trails. And so he's, he's really helped establish uh, an even better re relationship with the U.S. Forest Service, which we didn't work with too much around here because we're all BLM. Um, but yeah, and, and again, Gunnison Trails. It's not Gunnison Mountain Bike Trails, and so exactly. it's fantastic that we can branch out and you know work with the climbers on on trails that access climbing, and then get into the wilderness and do some some wilderness trails. So um, I mean, it's a it's a big world of trails, and I'm more 
I'm really more a trail guy than a mountain bike guy. Mm. Um, I, I don't I don't identify as you know solely as a mountain biker. My wife and I we love to hike. We do a little backpacking, and I just see the value of trails um, for people. And so, um, you know that that part of it. You know whether you're hiking or you're trail running or you're mountain biking or you're using a trail to go climbing. And you know what? If you're a climber or a paddler or a skier or a stand-up paddleboarder or whatever, chances are you're also a hiker, trail runner, or a mountain biker, or maybe a little bit of all three. Yeah. You may not identify as those. And I remember this this young woman came out and was doing trail work, and I'm just kind of talking to her, and I go, so, so do you ride mountain bikes? She goes, you know, I ride mountain bikes, but I don't identify as a mountain biker. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, fair enough. And telling. And so, I mean, it's what a lot of people have. And, um, you know, we were just down in, in Baja. We went to a place called Los Bariles, and it's near another place called La Ventana. These are kite surfing meccas. And the kite surfers and windsurfers that have been down there for decades, a lot of them from the Pacific Northwest and, and uh, Canada, um, when the wind's not blowing, they were building trails. And they're mountain bikers. And so there's these, there are these great trail systems adjacent to these kite surfing mecca, meccas. And these folks go out on the trails and they go trail running or hiking or mountain biking in the morning. And the wind kicks up and they go out in the afternoon. And... Uh, it was really interesting to see that, and that really brought it home to me that, you know, these guys, they probably, you know, their main sport is probably kite surfing or windsurfing, but they have a mountain bike and they like to ride, or they have running shoes and they like to run, right. but it's not their main thing. Mm-hmm. But what, what's, the, what's the important component? The trail. Trail, yeah, providing access and, and other forms of recreation. But it, was, it was pretty extensive. Um, but then when, when the IMBA opportunity, and it wasn't just the opportunity to work for IMBA, I was invited to be on the board of directors in uh, 2016. So before? Yep. Okay. Yep, before that. And I took that opportunity, and um, I was interested in, you know, I just saw that, that IMBA was, you know, IMBA has done a lot of great things, but they seem like they're always, you know, t- you know, under scrutiny from mountain bikers, Imba this, Imba that. Mm-hmm. And I could see it, you know, Imba the wilderness, Imba the e-bikes. At that point, e-bikes were big topic of conversation, but they didn't exist yet. I called them ghosts. They, you know, <laughs> people were all concerned about these things, and but they don't, they're not, they don't even exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that, of course, changed. But so I wanted, I didn't feel like I had the answers, but I wanted to be part of the conversation. So I joined the board and I got on the board. And within a year, Imba had some challenges, the Subaru sponsorship, um, you know, suddenly fell apart and, you know, that was a lot of revenue that they lost overnight and they had to let a lot of people go and, you know, it was a big mad scramble and basically a spiraling down of the organization. And someone along the way, you know, hatched the idea of, um, you know, me being the ED because I'd, I'd been sort of, you know, coerced into becoming the board chair. Even though I was like, guys, I don't have any experience. I've just been on the board for a year and you guys, you know, but anyway, they're like, oh no, Dave, you'll be great. And what I did as the board chair was I really dove in with the staff and tried to tried to help. And the, the, the staff said, yeah, you know, Dave's really digging in. Maybe, you know, maybe he could be the ED. So that happened. Um, I was never, I was never envisioned to be the, the business person. There was a, a COO, chief operating officer, and they're like, Dave, that, you know, he's gonna run the business. You, um, you know, you bring your mountain biking experience and some of your relationships to the table and, um, you know, you guys can partner on this. Well, that person didn't work out um, well initially at all and, and had to let that person go. And the organization still had, you know, struggles. And then 
you know, we changed our e-biking position and that brought a lot of scrutiny from the public for mountain bikers. From which way to which way? Well, we just softened it somewhat, you know, and the industry is, is constantly asking us to, you know, hey, going, hey, e-bikes are coming, you know, and, but we need, you know, you to, to, to be a little bit more open to, to the pedal assist mountain bikes. And at that point, you know, it was still in its infancy, but the board, you know, the board could see that and they, they relaxed the position a little bit and it wasn't a lot, um, but it was enough to where the, you know, the membership and the public took note and, and that, that, that's, that topic is, has softened a lot, but it's still, it's still a big deal. The, the former position was, we think e-bikes are great. They're motorized and they should be managed as motorized. Mm -hmm. So I just kept them in the motorized category. Yeah. What the, what the, you know, what, some advocates of e-biking are looking for is that it they they have access to some non-motorized trails. Right. That's essentially in the, in the pedal assist. So mm -hmm. like the class system came out, class one, class two, class yeah. three. Class one is pedal assist only. There's no throttle. You can't just throttle up something. The pedal assist cuts out at 20 miles an hour, and that's the bike that um, you know a lot of folks would like to see allowed on more non-motorized trails. And for some people, it's it doesn't make sense. They're like, but it's a non-motorized trail, and you're talking about a motor. Well, yeah, but it's a different motor. It's pedal assist. So, mm -hmm. and that you know that Great conversation area. just goes back and forth, yeah. Yeah. back and forth. So, that was fall of 2017. Then um, you know the wilderness, um, you know that that sort of came to a head, and you know I was a big part of Imba taking um, you know a hard position and, and not supporting some legislation that was um, you know controversial that would have allowed mountain bikes into wilderness areas. <clears throat> I felt like our partnerships with the BLM and the Forest Service and lots of other advocacy organizations were so important, and um, you know we would have been really throwing a lot of those relationships and partnerships, you know, under the bus mm -hmm. at that point. Um, so a lot of mountain bikers didn't agree with that. There's a lot of miss on, I mean, there's a lot of people that know the, the topic really well and believe that mountain bikes should be allowed in wilderness areas. And that's, that's, you know, great. Everybody should have their, their perspective and, and their opinion on that. But there are, are certainly a lot of folks that don't really understand what wilderness with a capital W is. And I had some people from Milwaukee saying, you know, we've got wilderness, you know, right behind Milwaukee here. And, you know, the, the bikes aren't going to be allowed there. That's wrong. And I'm like, no, that, that's the forest. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. not, it's that's not wilderness with a capital W. So federally designated. there was definitely some, some folks that jumped up on the bandwagon pretty quickly and, and, you know, had a lot of um, criticism for IMBA. Um, but then I think a lot of people also, it, they took the time then to dig into it a little bit. And once they, once they really dug into it and looked at it from all the different angles, you realize it's not a simple topic. And as mountain bikers, if we really want access to wilderness that badly, and we're going to, we're going to do what it's going to take to get that access. We're putting a lot of other things at, at, in jeopardy and at risk, including access in other places where we need these partners. We need their buy-in to create these new trail systems mm -hmm. in places that aren't wilderness that could be infinitely more valuable to people like the Signal Peak system or um, trails adjacent to communities, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Denver, Colorado, um, Maine, places like that. So, um, you know, those were those were tough um, experiences for, for me going from being a bike racer to trying to become, you know, a, an executive director of um, a nonprofit like IMBA and having some challenges both with, you know, the, the membership and the staff. Um, but had the support of, of my board, and um, ultimately, it was great. One of our board members, uh, a gentleman named Ken McNeil, who has worked in the bicycle industry, owned a chain of, of bike, bike shops in the Midwest, 
super smart guy, you know, um, entrepreneur to the core, great manager, great leader, great administrator, all the things I'm not. You know, he dropped in uh, to be my, my uh, chief, chief operating officer. And it wasn't long and the, you know, the board said, hey, you know, Kent's the CEO and, um, and, he, and it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm an ED and there's a, you know, the Wilderness Society, I'm pretty sure unless they've changed it, they have a CEO and an ED. And, you know, you, your CEO is, is you know, that's, that's the, the, the top boss. Um, and he or she is, you know, making the calls, but they're very savvy with management and administration and, um, you know, running an organization. Um, that will lead to an executive director in cases like that, um, you know, the experience of the sport and, and um, positioning, how we're going to position the organization, uh, fundraising, uh, some of those other tasks. And that's where, that's where it is right now. And I'm happy to, to fall in behind Kent. And, and we, we make a great team. And, and we've got a, you know, he's, he's a great leader. He's got an open door policy with the entire organization. Anybody can come to him anytime, question a decision, um, ask him for clarification on anything. Um, and you know, he and I have that same relationship. And so we'll, you know, bounce ideas off each other's and, um, you know, make sure that, yeah, you know, is that really what we should do? And, uh, along with others in the organization. So it's a, it's a really, um, I mean, that was a, that was a, he, he brings skills to the table that I just don't have. And so that's been really positive for the organization. Yeah. What sits at the core of the mission for IMBA? You said it started with access issues, and I've read, you know, there's education initiatives, there's access, um, there's trail building. So our mission is, is, you know, to protect, create, and enhance great places to ride. The vision is that everyone has, you know, access to great trails, both close to home and also in, you know, backcountry. Iconic backcountry, which, you know, define the sport for a lot of us. Um, so really, it's about, uh, a big part of it is about trail creation and because there isn't, there aren't a lot of trails in close to where people live. And so one of our, our um, um, I guess it would be our goal is more trails close to home. Because as, a, as a, a trail runner or a mountain biker or a fitness walker, you basically, you, you access the trails close to where you live 95% of the time. I mean, living in Gunnison, I ride Hartman's and Signal Peak all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll make, you know, the occasional forays up to Crested Butte. And every once in a while, I'll go someplace exotic like Moab or, or, or wherever. <laughs> um, but that, ha having that opportunity makes, you know, people happier and healthier. It makes communities more prosperous. And Northwest Arkansas is a really good example of a community. And that's Bentonville. And it's, you know, the Walton family yep. and the Walton Family Foundation. Um, a couple of Sam Walton's grandsons are huge mountain bikers. And they said, hey, you know what? We've got a workforce that we're trying to, to attract to this area and keep in this area. And so what can we do to increase the quality of life in Northwest Arkansas? And one of the, one of the you know, pillars of that, they decided it was going to be trails and we're going to have the, you know, the best trail system anywhere. Mm -hmm. They have also built amazing museums and along with the trails, you know, have come great restaurants and brew pubs and bike shops and all kinds of things. So um, it's been a, a huge success for them. And I, I don't think they ever, I could be wrong, but I don't think they envisioned really a tourist destination. Like it's more, hey, this is a relocation or retention or recruiting um, program. And now they're this huge tour, tourism destination. Yeah. Um, people, you know, flock there from all over because it's just fantastic. So communities around the country are taking notice of, of Bentonville and what's happening there, Northwest Arkansas. And they say, hey, you know, we want trails. Or they've been on that track for a long time. 
Mid-Atlantic Off-Road, which is the advocacy organization in the, in the Washington, D.C. area. If you live in Washington, D.C., you have fantastic opportunities for mountain biking and trail running and hiking all over that town. I mean, it's not a place, it's not a, a destination necessarily. You wouldn't go to D.C. to go mountain biking. But if you live there, you can go to a number of different, you know, fantastic trail systems that this organization has worked on over the years. A gentleman named Ernie Rodriguez, who's on our board, has been instrumental in that. It's just one example. Um, the Vermont Mountain Bike Association uh, up in Vermont, they're, they're just crushing it. They're doing so much trail development up there. And it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's a good thing um, because it just, it, it gets people outside. Um, the exercise that you get, whether you're riding a mountain bike or running or walking, it's healthier. You're get, hopefully you're getting away from your screen a little bit. Um, and you know, maybe you start climbing initially for the challenge and, you know, the fitness aspect of it, but pretty quickly you realize that there's a certain escape that you get <clears throat> when you're climbing because you're hundred percent focused on the route. And, you know, we all have stresses going on in our lives and things that are happening. And your wife probably tells you, Peter, you need to go climbing. And, you know, and you're like, you're right, I do. And you go out and, you know, you're kind of whatever. And then you, you, you do a great route and climb and you've had to focus on things and you had to put everything else out of your mind. And riding mountain bike is the same thing. You know, you can't be thinking about, you know, what happened at the office or, or you know, some other thing in your life because you're focused on the trailer. You're going to crash. And then something about those kind of activities and experiences, once we're done with them and we come back into our lives, we're, we're you know, a little more solid than we were. And so for our heads, it's so important. And that's the happiness bit. It's kind of hard to explain to people like it's for our mental state or it yeah. is, but it, but it actually, it really is. 100%. And as I get older, I only appreciate it more and more. And, you know, people are like, what do you like about mountain biking? I'm like, oh. I just, I just like being out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and enough. I know that climbing would be the same. Yeah, you don't need some complex uh, philosophical answer, really. It's just like, I like being out there. And you're absolutely right. And I was curious, the close to home thing is the like one of the biggest things that jumped out at me when I was reading through Imba's mission and everything. And is there a particular metric that you're using for that, for close to home? Because this, this initiative you have here reminds me of the trust, the trust for public land, and they want a park or green space within a 10 minute walk from people's homes by 2050 in like small and large cities. Is there like a particular metric you're using there? Or is it just like we, close we, to home? We haven't, I mean, we've talked about that. You know, what is, what is close to home? And is that, you know, roll out of your driveway and is it, you know, two or three miles and, and you need to have a safe route to ride to get to the trails and not all places have that. So we haven't gotten it, you know, defined to that level yet. Um, but we just feel like even if you have to, you know, drive to the trailhead, if that's a if that's a 15 or 20 minute drive, you know, that's about what we're talking about. It's going to vary, you know, place by place, and not every place in the country has the available land or landscape um, or open space for trails. And so, in some places, you would have to drive a little bit further. But um, really, what we're seeing now is people are choosing where to live based on trails. And making it, making a call or, or great climbing or great rivers if you're a paddler or great skiing if you're a skier, you know, since we can work, you know, in many different ways now and, and some folks can work remotely, you have that option. But um, the more trails, the, the more communities we can help um, 
demystify the trail building process. And that's really where we come in is there's a lot, the trail building industry has, you know, professional planning, design and construction. A couple of the companies will help you go through the process. The process is really hard and it starts with vision. So someone's got to have the idea. And now, you know, with the Waltons in Northwest Arkansas being featured in the Wall Street Journal and places. So parks and rec directors, you know, city planners, different folks from around the country are, are going, hey, you know, could we have trails here? You know, what if we could have trails here? But that's as far that's as much as they know. Then, you know, if you contact Imba, we can come in and we can do, you know, an, an assessment. And that's where we just basically look at what the open spaces and the potential areas for trails you have. And we did an assessment for the city of Omaha, the entire city, and, you know, looked at every park, every green space. And, and it's really interesting in a city like that because there's, you know, the underserved community has a lot less green space than, you know, that, so that, that, that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a huge aspect of it too. And right now, you know, access to the outdoors is, is, you know, there's, there's certainly unrepresented folks out there. And, and I know it's a big thing in the outdoor industry to try to change that. And, uh, you know, it's certainly important to, to Emba as well. And, um, boy, we could go into a whole, a whole nother topic, which is trails are common ground. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really important that, that everybody has access to the outdoors and everybody feels safe and welcome. Cause some people can say, well, no, everybody does have access to the outdoors, but not really, because if you look at a trailhead or a trail in a lot of places, you're, you're seeing a lot of white folks. And if you're, you know, a black person or a brown person or, um, you know, some other group that, you know, experiences discrimination or underrepresented and you don't see yourself, you're, you know, you not, every, towards that. not everyone's is, I mean, some people are confident they just go. And, but, and those, those folks are pioneers, but not everyone is like that. And, and, you know, I was just reading some, some things last night, um, a queer gentleman who moved to Massachusetts and he, you know, he just, he, he, he was reluctant to just join a group that, to go do something because he knew, you know, based on just, you know, the group dynamics of growing up that he would, you know, he would have a hard time, you know, fitting in. And then he saw, um, uh, a flyer or something for a queer snowshoeing event. And, and he was like, he was there and he went and he had so much fun. Um, and it was, uh, um, you know, an organization called the venture out project. And so it's, it's, it's really cool that there are more and more of these organizations and these efforts that are, they're breaking down barriers that truly exist for a lot of people. And, and we're making progress. It's slow progress. Um, but it is progress and, and we can continue to, to do that. And, and hopefully there's a time in the not too distant future where you look at a trail or a trailhead or a climbing area or, you know, a ski area, whatever. And you just, you, it looks like our country. It looks the same as our country and, and all, all shapes and sizes, all skin colors, all ethnicities, everybody's represented there and everybody's welcome. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had seen any trends between, communities that are predominantly white or predominantly people of color. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is probably yes. The access is, is likely less in those communities of color to trails. You bet. You bet. And, and they have less, um, less, you know, green space, less places to, to build trails. I mean, the parks are smaller. They're, they're, they're less. Um, but, you know, hopefully we can, 
you know, that equity of ac- equity and access is really important to us. And while we're not going to necessarily always be able to build a, a, a big trail system, we can build a bike park and a pump track and give that community something that, that that would be, you know, that they could enjoy and not necessarily have to have. I mean, gear is another big barrier. I mean, we, you know, a lot of folks who have been involved in the outdoors for a long time, gear is just part of our world. I know I was a kayaker and you know, I got kayaks, I've got skis and mountain bikes. And as a climber, you know, you've got all your climbing gear and then, you know, backpacking. You know, there's there's folks out there that, that don't even really understand what gear is mm-hmm. or can even fathom owning gear. Um, it's expensive. And it, so the outdoors is, it, it's expensive. It, it creates another barrier. Um, and that's where, you know, you're seeing high school mountain biking prop up in a lot of places or pop up in a lot of places around the country. And um, a lot of these programs are great. They, they'll, they'll find bikes for the kids that can't afford bikes. And they're, they're really, they're going out of their way to invite those underserved, underrepresented communities into the sports. And, um, you know, progress is being made, um, you know. It's, there's certainly challenges out there and, and a lot of work to do, and um, there will probably always be a certain amount of work to do. But um, I think there's a, a very committed and willing number of folks that are, that are you know, really working on it yeah. and trying to make the, the, the change. That's awesome. I wanted to back up a little bit and kind of go back to the Bentonville, Arkansas. I mean, I have, I have friends in Crested Butte that went there, I think, last year or, or you know, I forget exactly when it was, um, me pre-pandemic, but they had a phenomenal time. They said it was amazing. You can create trails, but you can't necessarily create climbing areas. You know, you can't make rock out of thin air. So you might not, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this or not, but is there, could you conceptualize a way to market climbing to develop a community like they did in Bentonville and, you know, it exploded because they created trails, but are there any similarities or parallels between building a climbing community like that and building a biking community like that? I don't have the expertise because I don't know what, I mean, basically I think you'd be talking about, and and like you say, if there was just a world-class landscape that had climbing routes all over it, then it would be, it would automatically be that if you had the community around it i mean what's an example of that what chattanooga i mean chattanooga's got a ton of climbing i mean yosemite it's in a park but like that you know there's there's things outside the park but so to to, to actually create that Mm -hmm. then you'd be talking about like um out and are there is there outdoor manufactured climbing that that like climbing walls that get created and and you know what it almost feels like that that would be wouldn't really fit the natural part of climbing, whereas in mountain biking, it's just, I mean, what the natural part of mountain biking is the, the earth, the rock, and the ground. And so you don't need to have like this, this rock face. Yeah. You just need to have open space. And then right. you, can, you can sculpt the trail into that. Mm-hmm. So it feels like to me, and I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm on the outside looking in, climbers have, um, not, not all of them, but a lot of them have an, an interest in the, the landscape. And I've always said it, I said, if there was a great trail and it was it was a perfectly built awesome trail in a, in a landfill and that was the only trail around mountain bikers would ride it yeah um <laughs> i'm not sure if that goes for climbing you know yeah and, and maybe maybe it would maybe not but i but climbing to me seems like it has that um that element of of um the natural landscape and and, and that so I, I don't know i mean there's like climbing like quarries and stuff you know 
And that, that gets climbed. The, the, like a town that came to mind after I said Yosemite and stuff is like New Paltz, New York, where the, where the gunks are. You know, they got a huge climbing community there because they have a world class. And people travel in there. Oh, yeah. And then the coffee shops, the restaurants, there's the whole social yes. scene that, 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 that goes along with that. Yep. And there's Lander, that. Lander, Wyoming is another example. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's that, there's that element in mountain biking for sure. And Bentonville has it because if you go there, you'll just see tons of mountain bikers, you know, hanging out and being social and there's groups and they're eating together. And um, you'll see that in Crested Butte. I mean, Crested Butte is, um, we, we, we do a survey with the growler every year and ask the, the participants from all over the state and the region, where's your favorite place to ride mountain bikes? Crested Crest Butte would just, would just win hands down every single time. Yeah. And it's not just the riding. The riding's good. The landscape is phenomenal. But Elk Avenue is pretty badass too, and, and it's that it's going to the brick, you know, for beers afterwards and pizza. R.I.P. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that that part of it is important because it is a not everybody is in it only for the sport itself. Mm-hmm. There's the whole package, which is important to a lot of whether you're climbing or paddling or, or mountain biking. Yeah. Um, that that in, in fact, for some, it, that's the more the social part is the is the best part. Yeah. And they just kind of, you know, yeah, I'll do the ride. and But I love the people and I love the atmosphere and I love all the things we do around that activity. So how about the trails for Common Ground? We mentioned that when we were talking about the inclusivity and equity. When we talk about that, uh, we're, we can start wrapping up here soon. I want to talk about that initiative just a little bit. It's focused on trail etiquette for all trail users. And this includes motorized, non-motorized, equestrian, um, snow sports as well. But it also goes beyond that to emphasize that this access is a privilege and it needs to be a safe environment for everyone. Yeah. How, how does IMBA involved in that as, as a supporting organization? So the way that started was, um, you know, during the pandemic, we really started to hear about trails being crowded and, you know, experiences suffering and a lot more conflict because so many people with the stay at home orders got pushed outside mm-hmm. and they're on mountain bikes and they're, they're hiking, they're trail running, they're walking. It just ton, the trails became super crowded Yeah. Um, in some places, obviously, where there were metro areas, uh, other places, it wasn't bad. Um, and, and, you know, trail use was already on the uptick before the pandemic, you know, more people were riding and running and you know the, the outdoors and and the, the allure of trails and climbing all that stuff it was on the uptake and then the pandemic came along and just you know blew that out of the water oh, yeah. for everybody so we're just trying to think wow you know what 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 could we potentially do to improve everybody's experience on the trail and that's something that I feel like I've really brought to Imba and have tried to, to emphasize is it's not just about mountain biking, because if we're talking about more trails close to home, if we just if we just have if we have a, a blank canvas piece of land and we drop a bunch of mountain biking trails on it, we can't be surprised when there's some guy with a latte and a, a labradoodle <laughs> hiking up the, the jump trail every single morning. Yeah, because we put a bunch of trails next to these people. So in, we need to, to go to the, the, the effort of and when we design it to make sure we're designing for everybody. And so before we even get to that point, we need to you know meet with the community and find out what the community really wants. Because the community might not know. They hear mountain biking, they're like, yeah, mountain biking, we're in. But if we build them a bunch of mountain biking trails, and then you know, hikers and runners and other folks come out of the woodwork, and they'll be like, well, what about us? Mm-hmm. So figure those folks in from the beginning. So we, you know, so what can we do to ensure that, that you know, we can have better experiences on the trails, not just mountain bikers, but everybody? 
um, well, let's pull together a coalition of trail users and see if we can't bring something together and come up with a, a you know some sort of a campaign that emphasizes you know trail etiquette and also emphasizes trail modernization. Mm-hmm. And we have some examples of trail systems that um, have really taken that 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 planning um, to the next level. And the the one example we use a lot is in Draper City, which is a busy suburb of Salt Lake. And it's the Corner Canyon trail system, 50 plus miles of trail, um, close to a ton of people who are very active. And it's open to hikers, trail runners, equestrians, and mountain bikers. And there's some trails that are that are shared both directions, both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the arterial trails. And some of those trails actually they, they do big climbs because it's on the Wasatch Front. Um, and mountain bikers can go up those trails, but they can't come back down the trail. So they're they're limited directionality. Other users can go both ways. Um, but when mountain bikers get to the top, then there's you know three or four options that are mountain bike optimized and mountain bike only and directional. So then the mountain bikers get to let go of their brakes a little bit, relax, and, and ride the trails that are made for them and ride them the way that, that, that their bikes and their skills were, were you know, designed to be ridden fast, yeah, sure. not worrying about another mountain biker coming up because it's directional or you know, hikers coming up or a horseback rider. Then they also have hike and hoof trails, which are close to mountain bikes. So a runner or a hiker or an equestrian can, you know, find their way to a trail and know that I'm not going to see any mountain bikes on this loop. I can I can relax a little bit because you know what it's like hiking um, or trail running on or I, mean, I, I don't ride horses, but I think that would be potentially terrifying. Oh, yeah. You spook a horse. Yeah. Yikes. I mean, I, yeah. I know I've, I've come across some horses you know, and surprised them when I'm on my mountain bike. Um, so there are, there are examples of these modern systems that have already kind of looked at this. And, and actually, Imba designed that system 10 or 15 years ago. Okay. We've got a gentleman named Joey Klein. He's been with us. You know, he's the longest tenured employee we have. And he's been on this for a long time. So this isn't, this isn't new stuff that, that we just thought of. He's been talking about this. Guys, hey, guys, we, we've got to talk about the walkers, the trail runners, the equestrians. In some places, motos. Here in the Gunnison Valley, I mean, I bet 80% of our trails are open to motos. Mm-hmm. So motos are part of it, too. Yeah. So as we brought this coalition together you know we brought in um, you know hikers trail runners motorized users national organizations uh, regional organizations some local folks some folks have been helping us all the way through the process but their board hasn't officially endorsed trails are common ground yet like the pacific crest trail association but a gentleman um, who's helping us has been you know really helpful they're just a little cautious on you know jumping in with both feet um, there's a few organizations like that, but the American Motorcycle Association uh, is on board after the American Trail Running Association. Um, we've got uh, the Vermont Mountain Bike Association, lots of mountain bike associations, obviously. Um, American Hiking helped us develop the, the program, uh, but they're still um, not an official endorser, but uh, we have, you know, we're in contact with those guys a lot, interested in, in following up. Um, Washington Trails Association in Washington State, very high-functioning organization. They're, um, they're big supporters. Um, so it's, it's going well, but what, what we realized right out of the gates was that we had to also address diversity, equity, and inclusion. So then we really came down to three pillars of Trails Are Common Ground. And it does start with making trails welcoming and safe for all people so that we can really you know, ensure that trailheads and trails actually look the way our country looks. And then trail etiquette, getting people to, to um, just and, and instead of being finger wagging and a bunch of rules, it's kindness. Let's start from kindness. And if, if people can just be kind out on the trails, and if you're a kind person, that probably means you're not, you know, just putting your head down and going to just run somebody over. And when you see another trail user, you're going to, 
you're going to pause and, and there's going to be some interaction. Um, so we start with kindness and then awareness is really important. That means don't just stick your earbuds in and you know zone out because it's, I, I liken it to driving a car. I mean, we have a certain amount of experience and knowledge and awareness when we get behind the wheel. You don't just get behind the wheel and lose your mind. Um, a lot of people do. They get on trails and they kind of lose their mind or they put their blinders on and they get selfish. So we're trying to encourage people. Kind aware and knowledgeable and the knowledge only comes over time and depending on what you're doing if you're riding a mountain bike or you're riding a motor or you're riding a horse you need a little more in-depth knowledge and more technical knowledge than you do if you're just hiking mm-hmm. um, or trail running mm-hmm. but if everybody has that knowledge of how what do i do when i see a horse um do how do i pass another mountain biker do i just go off the trail and pass them or uh, you know, so there's a, there's quite a bit of, of information there that needs to be conveyed. And, you know, with a new mountain biker, you can't just sit them down and in two minutes give them everything that they need to know. So how can we convey that information to folks? We've got a lot of new users. We've got a lot of old users that may need a refresher. Um, so that, that knowledge piece, beginning with kindness and awareness, is a, a big part of it, a.k.a. trail etiquette. Um, if, if we could be kind and aware and knowledgeable, if for the most part we could do that, we could move the needle on on uh, you know trail conflicts i've never heard like anyone approach it with kindness first i mean first and foremost that's top the priority. group was really clear i mean we, we we came down on that pretty quickly yeah that's amazing and then the third piece is just the modernization of trails and that that piece is a little harder for individuals to get behind but communities can get behind it and then individuals once they go to those kinds of trails they'll go hey we need these trails in our hometown because they work really well because there's a lot of examples of trail systems where everybody's using sharing the trails in all different manners going both directions all the time and at busy times you know they're a junk show as you can imagine you've got mountain bikers going fast um, now you have e-bikes on some trails you know then they can they, there's some speed issues there on certain certain types of terrain um, you've got trail runners you've got equestrians in some situations you even have motorized users in some situations um, so everybody's experience ends up being kind of compromised and there's some people that they're like oh yeah let's go out and hike or ride and then they like oh, you know what that really wasn't that fun um so so what can we do to try to ensure that that you know everybody has the best experience possible and so we feel like we're doing that by first of all making sure that everybody feels welcome and safe on trails and everybody has the opportunity to be on trails the second one is let's create as, as much as we can let's help the, the trail users be you know kind aware and knowledgeable and then let's provide and let's encourage communities to provide trail systems that actually honor you know individual use at times saying hey we've got walkers we've got trail runners we've got mountain bikers and we have equestrians you know as an example let's build a system that accommodates all of those uses well as opposed to saying hey you guys all have to share everything it's not going to be perfect nobody gets what they want i mean you can do that but there are there are land managers out there building these innovative systems in the upper midwest minnesota wisconsin they're doing a lot of these kind of systems up there so it's becoming the norm where people will expect a high quality experience when they go to a trail and the trail building industry can help provide that through the community assessment the you know bringing the community together and creating that community will for a great trail system a fantastic planning process finding the funding because the days of volunteers building you know 10, 20, 50 miles of trail for a community probably isn't going to happen. And they don't have the technical expertise anyway. Mm-hmm. That's where the professional trail building industry comes in. And a lot of times they're building with, you know, many excavators and machines. 
What that does is that brings, that opens up a lot more trails for adaptive users too. So when we're talking about safe and welcoming and inclusive inclusivity, we're also talking about adaptive users. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, so I'm working closely with, with uh, that community to try to come up with some standards and, and, you know, we, we take it for granted with, Hey, let's just go down this trail and we'll, we'll see green, blue, black. They need to know what's the narrowest this trail is yeah. what's the steepest grade what's the sharpest radius of a turn um how you know how far can i go before you know what's what's the the, the distance the loop so that they those users actually need some specific data at every intersection so that they know whether or not it's something that they could tackle alone or if they might need you know an able-bodied person along to help them through a certain section so there's a big world there, but since we're building with machines now, um, not exclusively, but a lot, we can bring, we can create a lot of adaptive opportunities too. And I'm not just talking about green trails because there's some phenomenally skilled adaptive users out there that are looking to challenge themselves. And so we need, just like, just like with everybody else, we need to have lots of greens, lots of, lots of beginner friendly trails, lots of double black diamond challenging trails and everything in between. You know, the full spectrum needs to be there. It's not in like a ski and snowboard area where, you know, Vail is phenomenal because it's giant and it has something for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you're looking for, um, you know, in the best trail systems too. Obviously not every place can have everything, um, but a lot of places can have just about everything. Yeah. Well, you're, you're thinking very holistically and I, I appreciate that. That's amazing. So we're excited. Trails are common ground. It's in its infancy still. Um, but, you know, we want that that logo. Um, maybe you can put it in the notes or something to be meaningful to people. Like if you see it on the back of somebody's bike, you know that that person is someone who champions the values of equality for all people. And, you know, they're a respect, or respectful trail user. Um, and they probably like riding on modern trail systems. Mm-hmm. That piece doesn't fit in as well. But, um, you know, if uh, a, a business, a pizza place or a, a shop has that sticker on their door, um, you know, anybody from any community could, could know that they're going to be accepted when they walk in the door there and relax a little bit because we know that's not the case everywhere in our country right now. Where can climbers fit into this? You know, we talked about how climbers experience on a trail is wildly different than a mountain biker. Yeah. You know, we're there for access to get up to, we have like a destination to get to, but is there, is there an avenue for climbers to plug themselves into this trails for our common ground? I think so. Um, as far as, you know, specifically with the climbing access trails, there's certainly a connection there. And, um, you know, you want to make sure that, that, you know, everybody from all walks of life, life and all skin colors are welcome to climb. And that access trail is part of that because that's how you get to the route. But, you know, going back to what I said earlier, a lot of climbers use trails. It's not their main thing, but they hike, they run or they mountain bike, or they may even ride horses or, or ride motos. Mm-hmm. But just that's what we like about trails are common ground is it's, I mean, there's great, there's other great, um, um, uh, efforts out there, you know, um, recreate responsibly and on a lot of the outdoors, but they're just, they're, they're outdoor general, which is great, but we like this because it's specifically to trails, but it's not just for hardcore trail users. It's for everybody. And, you know, we want everybody, even if they're, you know, a more casual user, you should still have that knowledge. You should still, you know, work from a position of kindness and, and be aware when you're out there. So I would say that there's kind of a connection to the, to the climbing trails themselves, but I would guess that, you know, some percentage of climbers use trails anyway for, oh, yeah. for fitness, for, for fun. Yeah. You know, you ride a mountain bike or you run or you, or you hike or you do all three. So I think that's where um, it comes in. So it, it's not necessarily one of those things where, 
you know, I really want to identify as a trail user, but you can just say, hey, trails are an important part of my life because they offer me peace of mind and physical fitness and enjoyment. And, you know, my main thing is climbing or my main thing is kite surfing or my main thing is paddling. Um, but I still endorse trails are common ground because it's a, you know, I believe in the values and, um, and the, the, you know, that's important. And those, those values run throughout a lot of folks in the outdoor world, I think. All right, well, I started putting a bow on this thing. Just a couple more things I want to run by you. To bring it back kind of full circle here, to go back to kind of the local advocacy, the Access Fund has a large network of local climbing organizations around the country. I mean, hundreds of them representing their communities. And the Access Fund also, you know, often says we can't do our work the, you know, to the best we can without the help of these organizations around the country. And I know EMBA has also has local chapters too around the country. I'm curious how those organizations support the larger national organization of, of uh, EMBA. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's much the same. There's uh, 200, uh, over 200 uh, EMBA affiliated organizations. There's probably at least another 200 plus that are, um, they're just not affiliated, but they still, they still are doing the same things. And we'll even hear from them and help them out when we can. Um, but they're trying to advance trails. Now, some of them are, are mountain bike associations, MBAs, purely focused on mountain biking. Others are like Gunnison Trails and Simba. They're both in Salida Mountain Trails, uh, Simba being Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association. They're, all three of those organizations and Durango Trails, formerly Trail two, Trails 2000, um, um, they're IMBA um, affiliates. So they're not a chapter that we don't, you know, do their membership processing for them, but they're still affiliated, um, with, with them. But, and really what, what they do is they help, um, they help us expand trails uh, across the country, which is what we're doing. I mean, Imba, it can be, um, we can resource communities. We can, we can help, help them along. Some need more help than others. Some are very high functioning and really don't need much help, if any, from Imba at all. And they're, they're doing trail development and they're maintaining their trails and they're educating their trail users. And that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day is maintain what you've got, educate your, your user community, and then you know look for new opportunities if that's what your community desires. And all those local organizations are really checking those boxes for us. Some are more involved in the social aspects and the, the creating of community and events and bringing people together. Others are more just, you know, we're just either working on trails or we're building trails. It runs the gamut. Some are high functioning. Some, you know, maybe have gone through some leadership transitions um, and they're, you know, they're trying to find their way again. Yeah. I think it's, it's probably very similar it to the similar. Access Fund. It sounds similar. And, um, you know, there's a, a learning community mindset that we're really trying to foster where, you know, different organizations can learn from each other and somehow making those connections so that uh, you know, at times they can be kind of isolated from one another. But if you could start to bring them together and they, they start to compare notes and learn from each other, then, um, you know, that can really, you know, advance everybody's work. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. 
there are varying levels that you begin that you can become a member at but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year and after that you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there it's all listed on access funds website accessfund.org so check it out if you're a rock climber please consider becoming a member of access fund second if you want to do me a huge solid please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on apple podcasts after that jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends it goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you helped me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time. <laughs>